that is indeed the way uh, we need you to care for us, Lord, to lead us away from temptation, for it is ever-present, to deliver us from the evil one, for he is always active in seeking to bring down those that belong to you, Lord. So we trust in your kingdom to be present, your power and your glory that lasts forever, Lord, to come to our rescue. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you, as we continue our look into the Psalms, to open to Psalm 69 this morning. We're getting close to wrapping up this book two section of the Psalms, just a a couple more weeks after this one, I think it is two. Um, So that means we get to try something different after this, but hopefully you're not too, uh, hopefully these Psalms are refreshing and you're you're not... uh, not too ready to get out of them. I don't think I ever want to leave them, having been in them for so long. Psalm 69. It's a rather long psalm, uh, but still, let's stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. To the choir master, according to lilies of David, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept, And humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment, may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. 
but I am afflicted in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When, they humble, when the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of His servants shall inherit it, and those who love His name shall dwell in it. This is God's Word. Please have a seat. Well, songs are powerful, as many of you know. And I was curious to know if there's anyone in this room who's ever tried to actually write a song. I know some of my kids have written songs. I've heard some ukulele songs from these ladies over here. But have you ever tried to write one? It's not the easiest thing in the world to write. I mean, you're, you're writing one because you're seeking to capture an experience. You're seeking to communicate some story. And often from the perspective of how that story has impacted your heart, uh, your soul. And if you're successful, then you open a window to your soul. And what is often so great about the Psalms is that they often show us how our own soul moves from one place to another in terms of its well-being. These are, many of them, songs, and they're designed to do that. And we need this because we tend to get stuck And we don't really know how to get out of those places with our own well-being. For example, some of of us find ourselves stuck in a sense of depression or despair. And you know what that's like. When you're there, you feel isolated. You feel stagnant, like you can't get out. And the feeling itself seems to fuel the feeling for more and more. Or you might get stuck in a place of weariness, which leaves you lacking the emotional energy required to get out of it. And so while we might know that things aren't the way they ought to be, we just sometimes feel very stuck where we are. We know we shouldn't be. We don't want to be. But nonetheless, that is just the case. That is the reality of it. We get stuck. And psalms, as these kinds of songs, show us the way out. They're, they in this psalm in particular, I want you to think of it like this. It's, it's a song, but it's written in such a way that it's meant to take you as you come into the, the corporate presence of God to worship, to take you by the hand and lead you from the place where the psalmist finds himself to a better place. So imagine that. The psalm itself is taking you by the hand and leading you out of this place that he initially describes as a place of despair, really, And He leads you through what that looks like in that time of despair, which again is hard for us to do because we don't often want to face all the things that we find in that dungeon of despair. But He leads us out of that dungeon into a hall where we find hope and ultimately to a place where we see the glory of the throne of heaven. So the psalm helps us to move out of this place to another place. And so that specifically is what this psalm is doing especially as you think about it, it's not just a diary entry. And I think when we read a psalm like this, we we kind of think of it as a personal experience. It's somebody's diary entry. But as you read at the beginning, this is meant for the choir master. It's meant for the people of God as they come into one of the, the temple settings to worship corporately. 
they're being taught to sing this psalm. So as you think about, well, why would they be taught to sing a psalm like this? Because it's a familiar experience, and we don't often know how to navigate it. And the psalmist, who's been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a song, to give it to the corporate body, is showing them how to navigate through it. So that's what we're doing as we look at this psalm. We're going to look at it specifically in terms of going through, having the psalmist grab our hands in the midst of the dungeon of despair, walking us around into the hall of hope and eventually to the throne of heaven. So let's consider it, first of all, this dungeon of despair that he's describing. As the psalm opens, it's a request to God to save the singer because he feels like he is over his head, that he's drowning. And look at these Look at these verses. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. So he's not talking about being in the lake and literally drowning. He's talking about the, somehow his soul is feeling like this. He can't get any foothold. It is over his head, and he's drowning. And that's not an unfamiliar experience. At one time or another, I think many of you could describe a time when you felt simply like this. And without a foothold, you have nothing to grab. You don't know where to go. There's where do, how do you find help? So the psalm starts by recognizing this. And by, by giving us this request, he's really inviting us to do a couple of things. One, it helps you to know that it's not unexpected or unusual to feel like this. Not that he's saying it's acceptable or something that we should aspire to by any means, but he's giving you permission to acknowledge that, yeah, sometimes I am stuck. And even though my heart desires to walk with the Lord, my de- I desire to live out my faith, I am yet stuck in the mire. And I don't know how to get out. So it's giving us permission to feel that way. And I think that's important because I think subconsciously, and many of us as followers of Christ think what, if, if, if we just have faith, then our lives are going to be blessed and happy, and we're not supposed to experience things like this. And if we are to acknowledge that we're experiencing things like this, it's an admitting something about the falseness and, and frailty of our own faith, that maybe it's not real. Either maybe our faith isn't real, or the God behind our faith isn't real. And so we pretend like it's not really how we're feeling. And consequently, we find ourselves stagnating all the more there because we're still drowning. So he gives us permission to actually acknowledge that sometimes, yes, we feel stuck. We feel way over our heads. We feel like we are drowning in our despair. And it's not as though this is something that happens just in a moment and it's gone. He, he ends this by saying, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. There's this implication that this isn't something he just woke up feeling like today. He's been feeling like this for a long time. And often when we feel like that for a long time, we feel farther and farther and farther away from any hope we haven't seen anything change. And the psalmist is saying, not only that I give you permission to feel that way, but he's also saying, 
you're not alone when you feel that way. This is a corporate experience. Because what happens when you get into despair? You don't want people to know that you're feeling that way. And so you hide it the best you can so that people may look at you and they have no idea that you're in a state of depression, which fuels your sense of feeling isolated and also fuels those others who feel isolated because they don't see anyone else suffering. So by the virtue of the fact that this psalmist puts this in the psalm, he's saying, look, it's not just that this is an unusual, this is a common experience. You are never alone when you feel this way. So we don't need to add isolation and its weight on top of the depression and sinking that we already feel, because I think that's what we tend to do. And as the psalmist explores the reasons for his despair, because he does go through that, he describes uh, the way that others have treated him, and we see this in verse 4 summarized, and in verse 12 again, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? And then in verse 12, I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. So there's this this social sense in which you you feel like a pariah in society. You feel like there are eyes out there constantly judging you, talking about you negatively. And the the frightening thing is you, you know that's the case because occasionally one of those things that somebody says creeps its way back to you. And you realize, if I heard this, you know, fourth or fifth hand, how many other things have been talked about me? How many other negative stories are being perpetuated about me? I mean, there is no way to defend yourself in such a situation because you don't even know what the accusations are. You just know they're there. And so it further makes you feel isolated and fuels your feeling that I really am over my head because I don't even know where the waters stop. Why has this happened? He doesn't really give an explicit reason, but he does mention something interesting in verse 5. He says, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. And then later he talks about the one that the Lord has struck. So there's this implication that maybe I'm feeling this way, maybe this is happening to me because of my own folly, because of my own sinful heart. And maybe that's the case, maybe that's not, but he's certainly willing to recognize there's a big part of this that very well could be my own fault. And in verse 6, he doesn't even stop there because sin and folly never only affects you. When you make foolish mistakes, when you commit some act of sin, it's not just that you're the only one impacted, it impacts the people around you. And this is what he's acknowledging in verse 6, let let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. Don't let me be the reason that other people are suffering and entering into their own sense of despair. And if, as if it, it's not bad enough already, he goes on to talk about when he's tried to pursue after the Lord, 
it has only added to the way in which people have mistreated him. Look at this in verse 7 through 11. For it is your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for, and this is the reason why. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, in other words, would I try to come before the Lord and deal with this? What was the result? That act became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. You can almost hear the sense in which maybe he's seen some of his folly and some of his mistakes, and he's gone before the Lord to acknowledge this humble state with sackcloth because he has, in fact, sinned, and he's admitting it. And instead, he sees the people around him just pointing their finger and condemning him for a for that being the case. And, you know, sadly, that can happen even in the church. We are, we are supposed to be a community in which it is a safe place, the place appropriate to come and confess your sins to one another, but too often we hold back because we know there will be people doing this very thing that he's experiencing. The very act of confessing what I've done wrong becomes my reproach in the eyes of the people. So it's, it, it's, it's not a pleasant dungeon of despair that the psalmist is grabbing your hand and walking you through, showing you not only what's wrong with your soul, you feel overwhelmed, but what's wrong in society, there's all these people and they are indeed talking bad about you and against you and have rejected you. And in fact, when you've tried to do the right thing, they're just beating you up as a result of doing it. It's like he's piling on top. You feel guilty for what you've done, and now you feel guilty because it's affected other people, and now you feel bad because that, trying to make amends for that has made things worse. And you think, I don't want to go for a walk through this dungeon anymore, psalmist. Let go of my hand. <laughs> I'd rather just only see this piece of it. I don't want to see all the other torture devices in this dungeon. But I think there's a reason why he's letting us see all the facets of all the pain of being under the muck and the mire is because if you don't really understand that, if you don't really understand the true nature of what you're suffering and experiencing, that when you come out of that dungeon into the hall of hope, which is where he's leading us to next, it won't have much impact. But when you really see how much at the bottom you are, how much suffering you're experiencing, then what He promises in this next section becomes all the more powerful in your life to help draw you out. And it's not an immediate thing, because even as He begins to talk about things of hope, later in the psalm, He gets back again to talking about the pain that He's feeling. So it's not this, well, one day I'm feeling this way, I start to sing this song, and the next day I'm out of it. No, it's this process. He is moving. It's, you know, maybe He's two steps forward and one step back, but he's moving. He's not letting go. And this is what he finds in the hall of hope as the psalmist continues in verse 13 through 18. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me? Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. 
According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. Now, in this section, there's, there's really three things I want to draw out briefly. One, he talks about, at the beginning of that, that uh, supplication, he says, at an acceptable time, O God. That's his prayer. He says, at an acceptable time. Now, that's an interesting term. And you think, does that mean there was a time when things weren't acceptable? Uh, you know, perhaps. And in our time, that's kind of hard for us to fathom. But think about it from the perspective of the psalmist. It's at least saying two things. One, it's saying is, while, while I have been lifting this prayer up to you for a long time, my eyes are growing dim, right? I'm weary. My throat is parched. There is some time in the sovereign plan of God when that prayer will be acceptable. So at least there's that aspect. So while I may have gone for 20 years in the midst of the suffering, there will be an end to it because there will be a day in which it's acceptable for the Lord. So that's at least the first principle to get out of it. But I think more specifically in the context of this Old Testament worship, knowing that this is for the choir to sing when they're gathered together at one of their festival gatherings in the temple, that this itself is the time that God has set aside to be when it is acceptable to approach Him. He established those times of feasts annually through the year. He established those times when they are to bring their sacrifices to the priests and offer them before the Lord. And that's how, because He has, he has made those times acceptable, there is a time that's acceptable before the Lord. Now, we don't live in the era of the Old Testament temple and the way that, they, that, the way that that covenant was administered. Now we live in the time of the New Testament when all of those things, the temple and the sacrifices and the priestly service and even the festivals are all find their fulfillment in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ made every day from the day He died on that cross an acceptable day to bring our prayers before Him. And that should give us reason for hope. We live in an era when God has made our access to Him acceptable. But secondly, this is the three parts in the second part of the, in the second point of the outline. So we have the, I needed to get with my professor, Jaron Bars, and subpoint him with one, two, A, B, C, and three. He would do that, by the way. You'd see A, B, C, D, 3, 4, F, E, G. They would be all over the place. So first we have this time that's acceptable to the Lord. And then he talks about the steadfast love and abundant mercy of God. And the, the danger, if we don't fully understand what we went through in that dungeon of despair, that when we read things like, uh, saving faithfulness and st steadfast love and abundant mercy. Those are just churchy words. Well, yeah, those are words. We read those all the time in church. They don't, you know, they're just spiritual, uh, but I don't really know the impact. And, but when you've been on this thorough tour, seeing the state of your soul and the situation that you find yourself in, you know that the only thing that will help you is something this powerful. Steadfast love means it's love that is standing fast no matter what happens to it. What happens to you, as, as Paul talks about in Romans, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. That's what steadfast love is. 
No, no depths that you can go to, no height that you can reach. Nothing, no body, no entity can separate you from the love of God. That's what it means for God's love to stand fast through every trial. So even though you find yourself guilty, admitting your folly, having perhaps even brought shame upon God's people, being the talk of the town in the negative way, none of those things will break the steadfastness of God's love for you. That His mercy is abundant. That's the idea. It is abundant in nature. And what's interesting is that's what He's appealing to. There is no appeal to His own righteousness. There is no appeal to the fact that He deserves it. There is the appeal to the, to, to the nature of God and the quality of His love. And that's even further expressed out in the last part of that when he says, draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. Redeem and ransom are, are words that have significant meaning, especially in the context of the Old Testament. In the, in the the system that God had established in the Old Testament, He gave an inheritance to the people of Israel, and every tribe had a specific inheritance. And within each tribe, each family had a specific inheritance. And if there was a time in which one particular family went into hardship and had to sell his land or lost his land for some reason, one of his close relatives would be in a position, he, would, he was called a redeemer. He was his kin, so he was called a kinsman redeemer. And it was his responsibility to buy it back for the sake of the one who had lost it, to ensure that none of the inheritance that God had promised to the people of God would ever be lost. There's this kinsman-redeemer aspect. And the, the book of Ruth is really all about that whole concept. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite woman who married, who married an Israelite because he and his family had fled in the time of famine from their inheritance, so they'd lost their inheritance. They were a poor family. And this Moabite woman who marries this Israelite man who has an inheritance to come that's now lost, well, he dies, she sticks to her mother-in-law, and they return back, because they don't have anyone to take care of them now, to the land of Israel. But they're poor. They have nothing. So Ruth goes and gleans at this field that belongs to one of, their, of, of her mother-in-law's relatives. because he is a kinsman redeemer. And when he finds out who she is and that she is kin and that he has responsibility, he buys the land that belonged to them to redeem it, and he ends up marrying Ruth. And of course, Ruth becomes the what great-grandmother of King David. But it's the story of the responsibility of the one who is closest of kin to redeem that which was lost. So when the psalmist is appealing to God as a redeemer to ransom him, he's saying, look, it's not just that your love is abundant and that it's steadfast. It's that you yourself have described the responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. So he's appealing to the duty of God of all things to redeem his soul from its state in which he's in. So this is the hall of hope. He's leading us by the hand. Remember, he's taken us and shown you how bad your life really is. 
in the dungeon of despair, so that when He brings you out of that to the hall of hope, all of a sudden these words of redemption, of ransom, of abundant mercy, of steadfast love have real power to, to, to help pull you out of that dungeon, to give you a restoration of your hope that while you may feel still there, there is hope, there is hope. And eventually, eventually, well, there's one other thing that's also important. So, this is the fourth sub-point of the number, point number two. Don't you love that? There's an appeal to justice. And this is reminiscent of what we think of a lot of, the, a lot of the imprecatory psalms where he's calling God's hand of justice to be upon those people who are treating him in such way. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that. But it is important because salvation that we're, that is often involving the justice of those who have caused the oppression, because salvation is being saved from something, some measure of oppression, and, the, and, and always the salvation of the one who's being oppressed results in the judgment of the one who is the oppressor. But what's so fascinating about this case is that as we see these, some of the words that Jesus Himself, uh, the, the prophet's quote, with relation to Jesus Himself in verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And we understand why that was the case in Jesus' time, because He was being made a substitute in the place of the sinner to experience the judgment that was due. And, and while He doesn't on the cross cry out for God to bring down all of those who are putting Him to death, instead He prays something the opposite. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, why is he saying that and not what the psalmist is saying? Because literally, their folly and their sin is being placed upon his shoulders. It's the reason why he's there, and he's accepting it as the judgment of God. So it's not a forsaking of judgment. It's the fulfillment of, just, of judgment, which is another reason why we have hope as we find ourselves in this hall. For the reproaches of those who reproach you, which could be us, have fallen on Christ. So while we might find ourselves in a dungeon of despair, it is not a place where the waters will finally and eventually sweep over us because Jesus took that judgment for you. Lastly, the last room, as He leads us out of the dungeon of despair into the hall of hope, He finally reaches the throne of heaven. And this is how the psalm ends. It ends on this high note. The glory of God understood from the experience of walking that hall of hope cries out to be seen, to be admired, to be enjoyed by all of creation. It's simply too small to be limited. I mean, this is how the psalmist ends. I, in verse 29, it begins to turn. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own people who are prisoners. So he's telling his own story, and the story of the psalmist shows us that he did escape that dungeon of despair. He did reach, not only through the hall of hope, but this place, the throne of heaven, where things are, things are, are so restored that he wants to tell this story to the world. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of His servants shall inherit it, and those who love His name shall dwell in it. 
You think, why does he get there? Why do we do any kind of praise before the Lord? It's not because necessarily the Word prescribes it. Well, this is your duty. You're supposed to offer praise to the Lord, or it's something that's good that you're supposed to do. It's know that words of praise are something that you cannot hold in. When you realize that something is so worthy of being admired, you want to tell people about it. I have not yet seen the movie Top Gun, but I've had lots of people tell me to go see it and watch it, that it was really good. I don't know if it is or not, but why do they tell me that? Why do people tell you that? Not about Top Gun, but about any movie they might see that's so good. Because it was so good, they know it deserves to be admired by more than just them. They, want, they, they know it will bring, uh, what is it, joy to the watcher, appreciation to the participant. And it is just not enough to, only, to be the only one to see it. And that's what the psalmist is saying. When you reach this point, it will never be enough for you just to enjoy what God has done for you. You will have to shout it from the rooftops. You will have to sing it to the world. So we need psalms like this that are like the gentle leader who takes us by the hand when we find ourselves feeling like we're underwater in our soul. To show us how bad things really are just so we can get to the hall of hope and really see its power. And as that hope begins to shape us, as that hope begins to pull us out, and we find there is a rescue, there is a Redeemer, and we know what He's done for us, we can't help but shout it from the rooftops as we see God in this throne of heaven to let the world know. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this psalm and how He teaches us how it is we can see our way through as we hold His hand and participate in the corporate body as they too go through this experience, Lord. That we find, even when we find ourselves in despair, there is a hall of hope that the Psalms can help lead us to, that explain the power of what Jesus has done as the exhibition of your steadfast love, as the power of your abundant mercy, as the kinsman redeemer in his act to restore us into your presence. Lord, would you help us to be excited about this, to desire to shout it from the rooftops along with the psalmist. In Jesus' name, amen.